0: This is J. Michael Edwards welcoming you back to the Majestic Academy's presentation of the Book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Today we are up to episode 8 in our study. Before we take a look at the Church of Pergamos, the Academy is going to share another cut from the album Eagles Nest Live with the Peña Sisters. Let's listen as the girls perform one of their latest songs.
1: Hello. Welcome to the Eagle's Nest by Pastor Donald Klein. Peace. We are the Penny Sisters. We are Filipino missionaries going to Canada. We're here to render special song. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which now I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Hello.
0: Thank you, ladies. Now, let's join our teacher, Pastor Don, as we learn some lessons from a church that was married to the world.
2: Thank you, J. Michael, and thank you to Jam, Jen, and Joy, the Peña Sisters. You may have missed this, but... The Pena sisters are my adopted granddaughters in the Philippines and the daughters of missionary Julius Pena. Actually, Julius and Marilyn Pena. Julius has been called back to Canada to plant churches there and would cover your prayers around the world for this to be realized. Today, we take a look at the church at Pergamos. This church seemed like a good church from the outside, but they were married. the world so let's let's read from our bibles revelation chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 and to the angel of the church in pergamos write these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges i know thy works and where thou dwellest even where satan's seat is and thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your precious uh, Bible. Thank you for this book, Lord, the Revelation. Help me to teach it now in a way that can be fully understandable by those who are listening. I thank you for all of those that are here in the Majestic Academy. In Jesus' name, amen. So on with our study. The city of Pergamos was the capital city of Asia Minor. It was renowned for its political power its intellectual achievement and its pagan worship it was a wealthy city given to luxury and fashion there are two special fe- features that caused pergamus to stand out in its time first of all there was a 200,000 book vol- volume i'm sorry a 200,000 volume library there now that may sound like a whole lot of books it might not sound like a lot of books to us but when you consider that every page of every book was handwritten on papyrus and parchment, it was quite an achievement. Along those same lines, Pergamus was the place where parchment was invented. Parchment was a type of writing material developed from animal skins and far stronger than papyrus, which was made from reeds. A second feature that marked ancient Pergamus was its pagan temples. There was a temple in Pergamus to Asculapus, the god of healing and medicine. His temple was filled with snakes, and when a person needed healing, they would go into that temple, they would lie down, and spend the night there. If a snake crawled across them during their stay, they considered themselves healed. There were three temples in Pergamus devoted to the emperor worship cult. As I have already mentioned, once every year, every Roman citizen was required to walk into one of these temples place a pinch of incense on an altar and say, Caesar is God. Of course, Christians refused to do that and a a severe persecution arose. On the hill outside the city there was a massive altar dedicated to Zeus, the supreme ruler of all gods. This altar was 100 feet square and 40 feet tall it is to the christian congregation in this city that jesus addressed his letter they were a church in desperate need of a word from the lord so when jesus comes to them he comes as one having the sharp sword with two edges the two-edged sword is a clear picture of the word of god the ephesians six twelve says for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then in Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus comes to them declaring that he has a sword and he has a word for them from God. As we study these verses, we are going to discover that this church was doctrinally pure. But they had drifted into compromise. Jesus comes to call them back to the right path. In these verses, there is a word for our hearts today, too. There is always the danger that we, too, might drift off of center. There is the danger that we might hold the right doctrines, but still drift into compromise with the world around us let me remind you that these letters can be viewed in three different ways practically prophetically and personally in all three of these fit us it's a practical book it's prophetic and it personally addresses the church today and we as individuals with these thoughts in mind let's turn our attention to the lord's words the church of pergamos jesus comes to them with a word from god Notice the kinds of words he speaks as I preach on the subject, the church that married the world. He comes with words of commendation in verse 13. I know thy works. Jesus knew all about this church, where it was, what it was doing, and what it was facing. He knew them intimately. We need to remember that he knows our church intimately too. He knows everything there is to know about you and me. And he knows about them and he begins by giving them words of commendation. He knows their situation, where Satan's seat is, where Satan dwelleth. This church operated right in the middle of a city chosen by Satan as his headquarters on earth. Regardless of what some people think, some preachers preach and some songs say, Satan is not now nor has he ever been in hell. He dreads that place more than any lost man ever has. When he is sent to hell, it will spell his eternal doom, and he knows it. Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I say praise the Lord for those words. Amen. In our day, Satan is free, and he operates as the god of this world and the prince and the power of the air. In other words, Satan is active in our world, and he has a seat of power somewhere. It might be New York. It might be Las Vegas, Washington, D.C., Moscow, Beijing, or any of a thousand different places. These words are used to let people know that Jesus knows they are living in a tough place. He knows where they are, and He has a word for them. You know what? He knows your situation, too. He knows it when you are in a difficult marriage. He knows it when you face persecution on your job, or at school, or at home, or even in church. He sees us today as we all face this crazy pandemic. He sees us. He knows what we're going through. It looks like Satan is controlling things, but God knows. God is in control. He is there and he will help you. Hebrews thirteen five, let your conversations be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He means that it's forever. He will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That's what we need to remember. He knows their steadfastness. We are told that they dwelled in Pergamus. There are two words translated dwell in the New Testament. One means to take up a temporary dwelling. The other one, the one used here, means to settle down, to stay, to take up a permanent residence. These people had settled down in Pergamos and they were not running away. The church in Pergamos was doing a couple of things right and Jesus commends them for it. Let's see what Jesus found to brag on as he looked at this church. First of all, he said that they held fast to his name. This church was not ashamed of the name of Jesus. His name is the most divisive name in history. Yet, his name is the only name whereby men must be saved. Acts 4.12 What a great verse this is. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Second, They are commended because they have not denied the faith. This church was doctrinally pure. They held on to the fundamentals of faith and Jesus praised them for it. There are some non-negotiable truths in Christianity. There is plenty of room for liberty in our service to the Lord. We don't have all we don't all have to live by the same opinions. If you have a problem with that read romans 14 through 15 and it will settle that matter for you now there are some things that are non-negotiable if you do not hold to these certain things to be true then you are not a christian no matter what you say this ancient church held fast to the faith we must as well so You ask me, Brother Don, what are these fundamentals you're talking about that I have to hold to? Otherwise, I'm not a Christian. Number one, the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. You've got to believe that the Bible is God's Word, that it is wholly inspired by God. You must believe that. You must believe that God inspired the writers to write the Bible. It is truth. If you don't believe that, you can't be saved because that's God's Word. And if you don't believe in God's Word, there's no way you can get saved. You must believe in the virgin birth of the Savior. The virgin birth of the Savior. If you don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, if He was not, He was a sinner. If he was not born of a of a of a virgin, and Joseph was really his father. Joseph is a sinner. Jesus would have the seed of man in him, not of God, and he would be a sinner, and he would not be able to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so, you cannot get saved if you don't believe in the virgin birth of the Savior. And then the vicarious death of our Savior. If you don't believe that there was an actual death, that Jesus really died, that He was dead, and that He was in the grave three days, then you cannot believe that Jesus was your Savior and you can't be saved. And then the victorious resurrection of the Savior. Praise the Lord the victorious resurrection of the Savior. If you don't believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, He can't be your Lord and Savior. You must believe these things. You must believe that Jesus died and rose again. We need to take our stand on these precious truths. Far too many groups are turning away from the fundamental doctrines of the faith and are swiftly sliding into apostasy. I mean, quickly, with this pandemic, uh, I mean it's really fast regardless of what anyone else does or even what our denomination does we must take a stand we God God will hold you accountable God will hold me accountable not the church not the church but us we must take our stand on the fundamental doctrines of the Word of God that's what it means to be a fundamental Christian a fundamental Baptist. I am a fundamental Baptist from the soles of my feet to the top of my head, because the Baptist denomination, if you will, follows the word of God. If some other denomination did, I may be I might be one of those. But because the fundamental Baptists follow the absolute truths of God's word, I are a Baptist. He knows their sacrifices. Their stand for Jesus had been costly. Even when this church was undergoing severe persecution, they stood for the Lord and for his word. Jesus mentions a man by the name of Antipas. He is called a faithful martyr. History tells us that Antipas refused to offer a pinch of incense to say Caesar was God. Because of his refusal to worship Caesar, Antipas was placed inside of a brass bowl. A fire was built under that bowl and Antipas was roasted to death. In spite of this, the Christians in Pergamus held fast to their witness. Jesus applauds them for their stand. Notice this. Antipas is called my faithful martyr. Because Antipas stood with the Lord, even though it cost him his life, Jesus calls Antipas by his own name. Notice this also. Antipas has been all but forgotten by history. But Jesus still knows his name. We need never fear that our sacrifices for him are in vain. He sees them all, and will reward them openly some day. It is said that when Antipas was old, that he said, The whole world is against you. He was told that, the whole world is against you. His response was, Then I am against the whole world. What a response. I am against the whole world it is still costly to be a fundamental believer if you hold to the right doctrine and live the right kind of life you are going to offend some people and you are going to be persecuted second timothy three twelve says "Yea, and all that will live godly in christ jesus shall suffer persecution be sure when that happens your lord will see and he will know and he will reward your faithful service even in his time and we don't know what's coming up right now we don't know what's going on in the world there's no promise that we won't face persecution in fact the word says openly that we will suffer persecution when we do stand fast my friend stand fast no matter what hold to your faith then he gives some words of confrontation when the savior looks at this church he finds some things that please him but he also find some things uh, that he doesn't like having offered them some words of commendation he now gives them words of confrontation he confronts the compromise in the church the name Pergamus means married as we look at what jesus points out about this church we are given a glimpse of a church that has fallen into a state of compromise with the world this church has held on to pure doctrine with one hand and with the other they have embraced the world They are literally in an unequal yoke with unbelievers, and Jesus confronts them about it in these verses. Here's what he says is wrong with this church. There is corruption in the membership. He tells them that some of their number hold the doctrine of Balaam. Balaam is one of the strangest characters on the pages of our Bible. He is an enigma, a real mystery. On the one hand, he was a man intimately acquainted with God. He knew all about God. He knew about God's character, and he even talked with God. On the other hand, he was motivated by greed, and he was guilty of leading the people of God into immorality and idolatry. You can read his story in Numbers 22 through 25. In those verses, Balak the king of Moab, wanted to curse the nation of Israel. So he called for Balaam to come do the dirty work. He promises him wealth and promotion for his services. Four times Balaam tries to curse Israel. Each time the Lord turns his curses into blessings. When he sees that his attempt to curse Israel have failed, Balaam apparently suggests that they can't curse Israel. They should corrupt them. This is accomplished by leading them off into immorality and idolatry and thus bringing the wrath of God down upon them. Basically, the doctrine of Balaam is wickedness and worldliness. The church at Pergamus was tolerating people in their midst who claimed to be Christians, but who lived like the world around them. Some of their membership were living immoral lives, and participating in pagan worship. Jesus was not pleased with these things. There is confusion in the leadership. Others there held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. As we discovered back in Revelation 2 verse 6, the word Nicolaitans means to conquer the people and probably refers to a priestly class that had developed within the church. What was merely deeds in verse 6 has become doctrine in verse 15. It had started out with a leadership in the church, elevating themselves above everyone else, and it has turned into a doctrine in that fellowship. He confronts the consequences for the church. He tells them to repent. This word means to change the mind. Repentance is really a change of mind that results in a change of direction. If they refuse to repent and deal with the corruption and confusion in their midst, he is going to come to his church and fight against those who trouble it. Notice the change of pronouns in verse 16. From thee to them. The Lord knows who belongs to him and who does not. He will come to his church and afflict those who are not really his people, but who would bring trouble into the church. Those who will not repent are going to have to face the Lord in judgment. So, we see words of commendation, words of confrontation, and then we see words of consolation. Consolation. The Lord makes some precious promises to the overcomers in this church. Those who walk with Him in spite of the dangers and defections can expect some precious things from His hand. He promises special provisions. He promises them hidden manna. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, God fed them by sending manna down from heaven. Some of the manna was gathered and kept in a golden pot in the Ark of the Covenant. Ancient Jewish tradition says that when Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians, Jeremiah hid this pot of manna. And when the Messiah returns, he will feed the people of Israel again. This manna is a picture of God's precious promise to feed his children. You see, the people in Pergamos were idolaters. They worshipped in religion that thrived on secrets and mysteries. The early Christians were excluded from the secrets and mysteries. Jesus says, you don't need their secrets. Walk with me and I will take to take you to a special place, and feed you on something this world knows nothing about. The saints of God might be excluded from many things in this world, but we have a place we can go. We can enter into His sanctuary and hide in His pavilion. When we are there, He will feed us with delicacies the world cannot imagine or duplicate. He has some secret things hidden away just for us, His children. The world and those in it have to search for ever-deepening experiences. They go to the table of sin and eat their fill. The true saint of God is content to be alone with his Lord in his tabernacle, feeding on his word and his presence. He promises his people a place of escape and refreshment, even during the most difficult of times. He promises special privileges. Not only will He provide for the overcomers, He will grant them some special privileges not enjoyed by others. He promises a new degree, a white stone. The Lord promises to give His faithful ones a white stone. This does not mean much to us, but it held special meaning to the people of that day. And There are several possible meanings that are attached to these white stones. Let me point out a few that speak to us. The white and black stone were used to indicate judgment in ancient courts of law. When a judge rendered his verdict, he would place a stone in a container at the appropriate time. He would roll the stone out, thus rendering his judgment. A black stone indicated a judgment of guilt. A white stone indicated a judgment of innocence. Jesus is telling these people that they might be blackballed by the world, but they were innocent in his eyes. He had taken all the black stones that were against them and he washed them white in his blood. White stones were used to signify citizenship. A white stone was often given to people who had proven their allegiance to the city. Jesus honors those who live for him. White stones were used as a symbol of victory. They were given to those who had won a victory in one of the ancient games. These white stones were called tessera and they allowed the owner free access to all public entertainment. Jesus allows his victors access to, oh my, the glories of heaven. A courageous gladiator would be given a white stone with the initials SP on it. This stood for spectatus, and it meant that his valor has been proven beyond all doubt. So, Jesus promises to honor those who take a stand for him. White stones were a symbol of friendship. Often, two friends would take a white stone, break it in half, and write the other's name on the other half. When they met, even after many years, they could see, I'm sorry, they could place the halves of their stone together, signifying their lasting relationship. We see that in some jewelry today. Friendship rings and friendship necklaces and things like that. That's where this came from. White stones were used to gain access. When a wealthy person would throw a party, they sometimes gave their invited guests a white stone. When it came time for the celebration, the person who presented a white stone was granted access to the banquet. Jesus allows his people access to the greatest banquet of all times, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Oh, I look forward to getting forward to getting there and teaching on the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. We see a new designation jesus promised his overcomers that their white stone would contain a new name which no man knoweth saving he that would receive it there is a new name written down in glory and it's mine oh yes it's mine and the white-robed angels sing the story a sinner has come home wow what a promise this is a promise of intimacy It was customary in that day for guests at a dinner to have a white stone placed at their seat. When they were seated, they could look at the stone, and underneath would be a private message from the host. It was a way for the host to share an intimate thought with his guests. Jesus promises those who are faithful to him that he will reveal himself to them in a personal and intimate way. You see, he is my Savior. He is my Savior and I hope He is your Savior too. But I have a relationship with Jesus that you cannot have. You have a relationship with Jesus that I cannot have. We are all saved the same way. We are saved by receiving Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. But He has done things in, for, and to me that He hasn't done in, for, and to you. We each have a special relationship. And those who walk with him and separate from the world will see this intimacy heightened and taken to new levels as the years go by. We've covered a lot of territory in these verses. And I wonder, is your relationship with Jesus all that it should be? Are you actively separating yourself from the world, to love Him and Him alone? Or has your life been invaded by the doctrine of Balaam? We're going to learn in Revelation 3.20 about Jesus standing at the door and knocking and knocking and asking if we wouldn't open the door to Him, that He would come in and sup with us and we with Him, to have that intimate relationship. Is your relationship all that Jesus wants it to be? Are you giving him all of your life? Do you profess to know Jesus even while you are living for the world? If so, you need to repent or he will come and fight against you. He might already be doing that. It might explain why some people seem to have so much trouble all the time. They're fighting. They're fighting against Jesus. They may be saved, but they're fighting against His will for their life. Maybe you would like to come to Jesus for salvation. Jesus is still saving all those who come to Him by faith. I read that book, I'm sorry, I read that verse from the book of Acts a little earlier. Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other... For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Your church cannot save you. Your friends cannot save you. Your religion cannot save you. My little barking dog can't save you. Uh, Sorry about that. But Jesus Christ can. Jesus Christ is still in the soul-saving business. And all you have to do is admit you're a sinner. And be willing to repent, to turn the other way, to repent of those sins. Ask Jesus to come into your heart, to save you, to take you to heaven when you die. That still is the only way to salvation. Friends, each of these letters may have been written to churches. This was written two thousand years ago, but the messages are still as relevant today as they were back then. God wants us to be married to Him through the blood of Christ. Are you being faithful today? Are you being faithful today? If you're not, there will be a price to pay tomorrow. Keep looking up and listening for The Shout.
0: Jay Michael back with you. You may have friends who are fluent in Spanish, Romanian, Tagalog, or Arabic, as well as English. This series is being presented in those languages and can be found on these platforms by searching Majestic Business Solutions, our parent company. Next time, Pastor Don will bring a lesson on the Church of Thyatira from the Revelations chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. Until then, keep looking up! and listening for The Shout.